In the uh, months of January and February, we've been walking through the book of Hosea, and maybe that's somewhat appropriate too because it's a fairly intense book, a a fairly uh, deep book that talks a lot about uh, our emotions and our our feelings. And we've been exploring together in the book of Hosea what it means to be lost and and found. And I have been charged by my co-teachers in this uh, series, Pastor Keith and Danny Ferguson, with the next to impossible task this morning of preaching through four whole chapters of the Bible. Now, those of you who know me, and have been around Jericho Ridge for any season of time, know that I am not the briefest amongst our teaching team. And so (laughs) I'm not sure why they thought that they would give me this task or why they think that I can do it. I am confident, however, that I can keep it under four hours in length. And so your dinner plans can stay intact. You may have to make some adjustments to your lunch plans, however. But thankfully, we have a whole bake sale that you've just purchased. So you're good with that. You'll be sharing that with the people around you. If you're new or visiting with us at Jericho Ridge, that's a joke, by the way. We will be, you know, finished in a reasonable uh, length of time. But I do want to kind of remind us of where we've been in the book of Hosea. And it's in this challenging part of not only the life of the church, but also it's just a challenging part of the scriptures in the Old Testament. Hosea is the first book in the Minor Prophets. It's right after Daniel. And this is a really confusing time in the life of of Israel. Uh, So Hosea begins in chapter 1 with that very powerful and very personal story of Hosea and his relationship with Gomer. And God instructs Hosea to actually go and marry and get involved in a relationship with a person named Gomer who then becomes promiscuous. And they have three kids together and Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea choosing to embrace this life of harlotry. And obviously this wounds Hosea very deeply. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, God comes to Hosea again and says, go and take Gomer back into your life. And if I was Hosea, even if it was God speaking to me and I knew that it was God speaking to me, I'm not sure how I would feel about that request. But Hosea does it. And it struck me reading Hosea's story in chapter 3 again to take Gomer back into his life. Hosea has a level of authority to speak about God's grace and mercy that some of us don't touch in our natural lives. Because he was a person who extended that to another individual. He extended a depth of mercy and compassion to someone else where none existed. And Hosea then has, I think, a unique window into God's love and grace to teach us. But Hosea also knew that just talking about God's love and God's grace is not the only task of the one who speaks for God. The story of Hosea and Gomer's tumultuous relationship as it continues to unfold becomes emblematic of the way that God feels about his people. Because God is reminding his people through Hosea and reminding us through Hosea that they have walked away from him. And that he's this picture of a relationship that they once had, this covenant, that they've broken it. And we begin to see clearly in the book of Hosea that God's people have promised that they will be faithful to him. They have promised that they will act in a certain way, but they have time and again made choice after choice after choice to walk further and further 
away from God. And Danny gave us a good picture of this from relationships in Hosea chapter 2. Because you come to a point in Hosea chapter 2 where it's almost as if God is saying, you know what, it's time for us to break up. Um, I, we can't continue in this unhealthy pattern of relating at any more. And then in chapter 4, Pastor Keith gave us another image of God's feelings about the relationship and his wayward people. It's a courtroom image where Hosea becomes like the prosecuting attorney, where he brings charges against God's people for their sins. And Pastor Keith reminds us that sometimes when we think about a relationship with God, we think about maybe we've done something that may have offended God in some way over a long period of time, and we can sometimes think to ourselves, I'll just say a quick sorry. It's easier to ask forgiveness than for permission, and that'll get me back on track, and then I can keep living however I want. But Hosea reminds us that the consequences of our choices and our actions continue in our lives, and sometimes we just need to sit there for a few minutes and think about the things that we've done. Then last weekend in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we explored the definition of true repentance. And we saw that not only do we need to be willing to agree with God about the problem, but we also need to be willing to agree with him about the pathway back into relationship with him. We need to be willing to change not just our attitudes and our actions, but also our thinking and demonstrate that we have herded and we have heeded the call to repentance. And we talked last week a little bit about just how bad things were getting. God had warned his people that things were really, really bad, and they got even worse. God began to allow the political and social uh, fabric to unravel around the people of Hosea's day so that they experienced just a brutal military siege from their neighbors to the south, from Judah. And then when that didn't work, then the second military siege came from the Assyria. And don't make me try and say the name of the king of Assyria again. It's, I can't even remember it. It's just one of those that you don't even want to try and, and pronounce. But despite all this, the people continued in their rebellion against God, and so it got even worse. Now, Hosea is talking to them again in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, and now the place where they live in Israel has become the battleground between the two major superpowers of the ancient world, Assyria and Egypt, and they're fighting right in the land of Israel. And so it gets even worse, both from an economic standpoint and from a leadership standpoint, And they continue down this path. And God says to them, it's going to get worse. And they say, yeah, we're just going to continue on down this path of disobedience. And God continues to say, there's consequences to your evil actions and your choices. And they say, yeah, yeah, whatever. We don't care about that. And it starts to get even crazier. Like ancient Near East soap opera kind of crazy. Because in four short chapters, in about a 29, 30-year period, they go through six kings in Israel. Four of them are assassinated. And only one of them, only one of the six, actually ends up dying in his own bed. You can read about this dark period in history in 2 Kings chapter 15. And so there's this massive sense of uncertainty because 
if you choose a side, you don't know if that side is going to win the day or if they'll carry on in leadership in the country. And so the economy is crashing, leadership is crashing, everything is going wrong for these people. And they kind of get to this place where they think maybe it might be an okay idea to kind of cry out to God about this. And in the midst of this, God speaks to the people and says, where are you at? What's going on in your heart right now? In chapter 7, verse 1, take your Bibles or on your uh, smartphones, go there with me. God's saying to the people, are you ready to turn back to me now? And their answer through their continued actions is no. Chapter 7 opens with God speaking through the prophet Hosea to the people. And he says, listen, I want to heal you, but your sins are too great. The people don't even realize that I'm watching them. I know what's going on. Their sinful deeds are all around them. I see them all. And God looks at the land and instead of seeing righteousness, people following him, all he sees is wickedness. Instead of covenantal love and devotion to him, all he sees is deception. Instead of people seeking justice and caring for the poor, all he sees is injustice. And That's just the political and religious leaders and the people are even worse. They're just as bad. So God says to the people, listen, I'm done with all of this. The day of accountability is here. He goes on to say, now Israel's going to plead with me in Hosea chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Israel's pleading with me, oh, help us, God, help us. You're our God. But he says, you know what? It's too late for that. You're just saying that because you're in a tight spot. You don't actually believe that that is true. You have rejected what is good. And now your enemies will chase after you. Hosea chapter 8 verse 13, God says, I'm at a place where I will hold my people accountable for their sins. I will punish them. To me, this reads a little bit like a scene from my childhood. Maybe you can identify with this. I can remember a whole set of times when I would get in trouble for doing something as a kid. And as you're getting dragged off to your room for whatever punishment is awaiting you, what's on your lips? What are you saying? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to punch my brother. I didn't mean to do whatever it was, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, do you actually mean that? No. What you're trying to do is soften the consequences in any way possible, if you at all can. And this is the place where both Israel and God find themselves now. Israel saying, oh, yes, you are our God. And God saying, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think you actually mean that. You're just trying to avoid facing the consequences of your actions, and that's kind of where we're at here. They're on the brink of being held to account for their actions, and so they murmur a quick, oh, help us, God, help us, you're our God. And God says, really? Really? I wish that that were true. 
I wish that your actions actually demonstrated that you actually, I was your God and you are my people. Because remember, we actually talked about that. We promised each other certain things. And God actually begins in chapter 8 to lay out this tragic reversal of consequences, reversals that are going to happen and come into play in the lives of his people because of the choices we have made. And they're actually the exact opposite of what they promised each other way back in Deuteronomy. The things that God said, I will do these things for you if you will be my people and I will be my God. So God made promises to them. God promised them, for example, protection. Now, if you look in chapter 8, verse 7, God says, I'm actually going to withdraw my protection from you. You're going to experience something categorically different. I promised you blessings and grace. You're just going to get anger and judgment from me now. We can't go by the things that we promised each other. I promised you forgiveness, that I would be ready and quick to forgive. But now, look at chapter 8, verse 13. God says, I am going to hold you to account. I'm actually going to remember your sins. I'm not going to forget about them because you are not living in a way that's consistent with the promises that I made to forget and forgive your sins. God promised back in Deuteronomy he would build up their nation, that he would be their source of security and strength. And now in chapter 8, verse 14, God's saying, I'm going to destroy your cities. This is not going to go well for you. I have to remove my protection from you. God promised fruitfulness for obedience in chapter 9, verses 11 and 14. Now God's saying, I'm actually going to totally reverse that promise. I'm, I'm giving you barrenness instead of fruitfulness. God promised that they would experience his love. And in chapter 9, verses 15 to 17, he's saying to them now, no, you're going to experience my rejection. Remember the names of Hosea's children in from chapter 1. One of them was not loved. God's saying to you, I'm, I'm not in a position where you are living in such a way that you can experience my love. I'm going to remove my love from you. It's as if God is holding up a mirror to them, their lives individually and then collectively as well, and saying, this is the fruit of the way in which you are living. We made promises to each other, and I am no longer in a position where I can keep my end of the bargain because you are so committed to destroying this relationship and to not upholding the things that you have committed to me in any way. And the word picture that Hosea uses to kind of get at this, to drive at the situation, actually comes from the world of cooking. And at the beginning of chapter 7, you see this, and it kind of is a bit of a funny image that he brings up. Starting in verse 4, Hosea keeps talking about a baker and an oven. Now, this can be a little bit confusing for us because when we think about baking, when we think about an oven, we think about walking into our kitchen, we think about, you know, a 220 outlet and plugging it in. If it takes longer than two and a half minutes to warm up, we get a little bit antsy and get excited about it. But in the ancient world, the oven, or if you've traveled outside of North America, like our team in Guatemala, when we go into people's homes, one of the things that we observe is their cooking techniques, and a lot of them either are um, 
We've had instances where we've gone into a family and asked about their situation and they'll say, oh, so-and-so died because they fell into the fire, the cooking fire. They actually, in, they, they had so much smoke inhalation that they were asphyxiated and overcame and actually ended up perishing because they fell into the fire. So this is, this is not uncommon in other parts of the world. When we traveled in um, Africa, in East Africa last year, you see the way in which they organize their homes and their cooking techniques. And so this is what uh, Hosea is driving at here. Historians and archaeologists tell us that cooking in the ancient world was a pile of work. It was not like preheat your oven, stick it in, and away you go. You actually had to start, if you wanted to bake something, you start the night before. You've got this little mound that you're working with that has been fired on the inside. And so you put all of your wood in there and you stoke it up before you go to bed and then you let it kind of burn down overnight. So in the morning, hopefully what you have is these nice warm kind of embers. And there's no kind of flat top cooking surface so what you do, these are called tenures. And so you build this roaring fire, you let it settle down until you have hot, even smoldering coals. And then you knead the dough. And the consistency of the dough is pretty important. It can't be too runny or it can't be too stiff. And then you take your dough and you literally get it in a little ball and you throw it against the side of your oven, hoping that it sticks and doesn't fall into your coals. And then you let it sit there and you watch it because... Now you've got the side of your oven has absorbed the heat from all of the fire that you've stoked throughout the night. And then you've got your coals that if they've got the right temperature, they're going to radiate the heat to cook the other side of your bread. So look at Hosea chapter 7, verse 4. Hosea says to them, they're kneading this dough and this metaphor for kneading this dough. And then they're putting it in. He says, you're like an oven that's kept hot. You're too hot. While the baker is kneading the dough. Your hearts are like an oven blazing with intrigue. The plot smolders through the night. The plots, right? They're killing each other off at the, at the monarch level at this point. And in the morning, it's still breaking out like a raging fire. Burning like an oven. They consume their leaders. They kill their kings one after another. No one cries out to me for help. Because you have two problems with a fire in the ancient, with your cooking, your little stove in the ancient near world. One is if your fire actually gets out of control and gets out of your oven, it's going to burn everything up around it. And secondly, if, you're, if your oven is too hot, you actually can't cook anything in it. And so this is what Hosea is driving at here. He's saying, you guys have a real big problem because with, with this level of sort of amped up, overheated, you're not even really spiritual, you're just totally out of control in every area of your life, then what's going to happen is your oven wall is going to be way too hot and you're going to actually burn the one side of your dough when you throw it against there. And the other side, because it's not coals that are even heat, it's actually just going to be raw because the heat from the outside is going to be so hot and then there won't be sufficient heat coming at the other side. And so look in Hosea chapter 7. He says in verse 8, the people of Israel mingle with godless foreigners. They are as worthless as a half-baked cake. Worshiping these foreign gods has sapped their strength. They don't even know it. 
Their hair is gray. They don't even realize that they are old and weak. Their arrogance testifies against them. They do not return to the Lord their God. They don't even try to find him. Hosea says, you guys have a problem. The root problem is that before you actually even get into the cooking, you've actually done a bad job in the mixing and in the preparation. So I think about this in terms of our daughter. Last year, about this time, we discovered that uh, she has a significant allergy to gluten and to dairy. And so the cooking illustration here that Jose is trying to go for is like an impure mix. He says, you've been mixing yourself together with these godless practices of all of these foreigners. We would call that syncretism. They're taking some kind of religious stuff that God and mixing it in with a whole bunch of other things. And so one of the things that we're learning, you know, with Sophie in cooking for her is that obviously, you know, you got to remove the wheat and the gluten from your baking. So we use gluten-free flour, we use almond or coconut milk and so on. So typical Saturday morning, I'm uh, doing pancakes for the kids using the best pancake recipe known to humanity. It's in the joy of cooking. I do it so often I've memorized it. It's one and a half cups of flour one and a half cups of milk, and you, know, you put other stuff in there. So, like, if I'm mixing this, and I've got, and I think to myself, you know what? <sighs> Jared and I are going to eat these pancakes. Meg's going to eat these pancakes. Why don't I just use a cup of regular flour, and I'll put in a ha- I'll do a half a cup of gluten-free flour. That should be okay for Sophie. I mean, we're going to eat more of the pancakes than she is. And then I get to the milk, put in a, I'm going to put in a cup and a half of milk, and uh, think, well, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of running low on almond milk. I'll just put in regular milk. I'll put in, why not just a cup of regular milk? I'll put in a half a cup of almond milk. I at least have that around. And butter, eh, I don't know. Sometimes I forget that butter is a dairy product. So I'm like, ah, I'll just put butter in this time. You know, calls for three tablespoons. Why don't I put in six? As soon as I start mixing in some Robin Hood or all-purpose flour or whatever it is, my flour is no, my, my product that I'm providing is no longer gluten free. It has gluten free stuff in it, but it's not gluten free. It's not dairy free. As soon as I add dairy into that mix, doesn't matter how much non dairy is in there, there's dairy in there. And for people that have even more than just like our Soviet allergy to it, like celiacs, you've got to be so careful about cross contamination with all of these things. So this is what Hosea is driving at here. He's saying, listen, you, in Israel, you've kind of mixed your flowers here. You've kind of been like, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll still do some worship of God stuff. That's good, that's good. We'll do some of that. And then we'll mix in some other stuff that we want on top of that that maybe is working for the other nations, things that are going well for them. And God says, you know what? This is a problem. If you orient your life around just mixing a little bit of Jesus in every now and then, put in a little bit of God organization or religious activity and stuff, and you expect that to counter the negative choices that you make. Do a little religious activity. Come to church every once in a while. Hope that this overcomes the general patterns in place in your life. Give a small amount of my money to God and then think to myself, great, now I can do what I want with the rest of 
my money. Or I'll let my anger rage out of control, simmering just below the surface of my life. But then I'll tell myself, you know what? When I go to church, I'm not mad at other people. At least they don't know it. And so ah, that kind of counteracts that, doesn't it? Especially if I go more than twice a month. Like that's re- I, God should be very happy with me. That should count for something. We allow our pride or our desire for control to run amok in our lives so that we treat those around us, our fellow students, our employees with disdain. But we then sit down at the end of the night, read a few verses in our Bible and think, I'm, I am knocking this like momentum journaling thing out of the park. This is great. God must be super happy with me now. I'm glad that this verse showed me so clearly today that God agrees with me that all of my coworkers are idiots. You know, I'm going to journal about that. You see how we mix these things together in our lives? And we think if we get the balance of ingredients all right, well, I have more Jesus stuff in there than non-Jesus stuff. We feel pretty good about it. And we think God should be pretty happy. But the core problem is that mixing a little bit of good in doesn't account for or counteract the bad. Once I put the Robin Hood flour into the pancake mix, it's not gluten-free anymore. Once I use milk, it's not dairy-free anymore. And so God pushes into this word picture even more aggressively with the people in Hosea. And you get this because you see that picture of trying to get your dough and the actual composition of your dough just right. Because if your dough is too much liquid in it, it's just going to, when you throw it on the side of the oven, it's going to slide right off and down into the coals and you're done. If it's too stiff, it's not even going to stick at all. And so God's using this kind of, Jose's using this picture to try and help us understand the challenges of this. That you actually have to be very careful to stoke your fire appropriately, watch your pancake carefully, Ideally, you've got this even amount of heat coming from the sidewall, coming from the bottom. Otherwise, you get into serious trouble. God says to his people, you guys have been mixing and playing around with the recipe for so long, you actually can't bake bread that is edible. It's burned on the bottom and raw on the top. And if you flip it over and try and stick it on the other wall, it doesn't help you at all because it's burned. And so you can cook the other side. It's still burned. No one's going to eat this. Stop playing around with the recipe. There's no, we have to throw it out and start over again. It's half-baked. It's completely useless. And so God says, you know, when you mix worship with me in with other things, that's the recipe you're going to use? When you pursue money as your primary objective and success as your primary objective in life and you appease your conscience by telling people around you that you're doing it so you can be more generous to the poor, You're deluding yourself. You're playing with the recipe. When family has become your idol and your first priority, you filtered every decision through the lens of what would be best for my kids instead of what's God calling me to do and maybe calling us to sacrifice in this situation, you are sapping away your spiritual strength. When you watch a bit of porn And you say to yourself, you know what? 98% of the things that I looked at online this week were pretty healthy. You're deluding yourself. Hosea says, it's like your hair has turned gray 
and you don't even know it. You walk by in the mirror and you look and you say, when did that happen? Or he says, it's like you are old and you can't actually even lift anything in Hosea chapter 7. You don't even realize, verse 7 verse 9, that you're old and that you're weak. And then you go and try and lift something and you can't do it. And you wonder why. You go and try to exercise a spiritual muscle and pray for somebody and you think, hmm, I don't even know how to listen to God anymore. How and when did that happen? The core problem, Hosea says, is there's actually something going on in your heart. Your heart is divided. Sure, part of your loyalty still rests with God and his priorities and all of that good stuff, but part of your heart and part of your best strength, your best energy, your highest thoughts are given over to other priorities and other things. God says, this is a recipe for a half-baked cake and a half-baked life. Burned on the one side, raw on the other, it's inedible. I can't use that in any way. You cannot serve, Jesus says it in the New Testament another way, you can't serve two masters. One of the commentators looking at this text says, how better to describe a half-hearted, half-lived religion, half-hearted policy than a half-baked scone? See, some of you are here today and you need to pay careful attention to this part of the message of the book of Hosea because you are mixing stuff into your life that has no business being there. And you're not worried about it because you think, on the whole, the recipe is still a pretty good one for success. And it might actually look that way from the outside. And you might have told yourself that. But God is saying to you right now, do not fool yourself. If you want to experience those good things that I have promised to you, you need to walk in obedience and faithfulness to me. None of this half-baked, half-hearted stuff anymore. I cannot abide with you if you're burned on one side, raw on the other. And the image, another picture that Hosea brings up in this chapters, these chapters over and over again to help us understand this idea is something else that comes to us from the world of agriculture. And that is the picture and the principle that you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 9 says it this way. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from their sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let us not get tired of doing what is good because at the right time we will reap a harvest of blessing if we do not give up. You will reap what you sow. If you sow generosity into your life, you'll reap a harvest of blessing. If you sow seeds of knowing and understanding the gospel and being open 
to where it is that God leads you to talk about what he's doing in your life with those people around you, you'll reap a harvest of missional faithfulness and a harvest of people who, because as they look at your life, want to come to know more about Jesus. If you're sowing seeds of faithful obedience to God into your life, then you'll harvest a crop that reflects that. But if you're sowing other things into your life, you will also reap that which you sow. And there's some good litmus tests in this text to help us understand and think about what it is that we might be harvesting in our lives. Look with me in in chapter 10. And God is speaking to the people. And he talks about their hearts. Starting in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, How prosperous Israel is. She's like a luxuriant vine loaded with fruit. But the richer the people get, the more pagan altars they build. Oh yeah, they're more bountiful in their harvests, but what do they do? They sow that back in to building more and more beautiful sacred pillars, worshiping idols. The hearts of the people are fickle. They're slippery. They're untrustworthy. And they're guilty and they must be punished. So the Lord says, I'll break down their altars and smash their sacred pillars. Verse 4, they spout empty words. They make covenants they do not intend to keep. So injustice springs up among them like poisonous weeds in a farmer's field. God says, this is what you have sown in your life. You've sown poisonous weeds. And so this is what you're going to reap. And the way that it shows up in Hosea's day is in the question of trust. Who are they trusting in? Where is their heart inclined towards? So I want to ask us a few questions of reflection and response today. And each question has a kind of litmus test that comes to us from these texts in Hosea. The first question for reflection is just what Hosea was trying to push in and ask the people, who are you trusting in? You're trusting in Egypt, you're trusting in Assyria, you're trusting in your kings, you're trusting in your wealth, you're trusting in your own strength. Who are you trusting in, Israel? And we can ask ourselves the same question today. Who or what are you trusting in today? And there's only one way to actually find out that question because we can all put on a pretty good face and talk a pretty good talk about, oh, I'm trusting in Jesus. You know, God's number one in my life. The way you'll see this is when times of trouble come. Where do you turn for help in a time of testing? Where do you seek out a source of strength? That'll reverberate loudly and clearly where your trust is in. And we'll honor those who walking through in our community are continuing to do that and declare their confidence and trust in God and turn to him for help. So the second question for reflection is around this agricultural metaphor. Hosea says, what's the soil condition like in your heart today? 
In chapter 10, Hosea says, we've got to plow up this hard soil. It's time to seek the Lord. And then you can, in verse 12, plant seeds of righteousness and then you'll harvest a crop of love because you've plowed up that hard ground in your hearts. And then when the hard ground is plowed, then you can seek the Lord and then he can return to you. And so the way to know what the soil condition is like in your heart is to ask, what are you actually sowing into your heart? What are you planting in your heart right now? Or what are you harvesting in your heart? What's going on in your life right now? And that'll talk to you about the soil condition of your life. If God's trying to plant something in your heart and nothing is going in, then you've got to check the soil condition and ask maybe there's a hardness of heart. And throughout all of this, the language of our hearts is are there this, this language of a divided heart or a heart that is split in its allegiances in some way. And so the, the way that often in my own life I try and say, because again, I would say, no, Lord, my, my heart is towards you. But the way that I will sometimes test this in my own life is ask, is there anything that if God came to me and asked me to give it up, I would flat out without any questions or reflections say to him, no, you cannot have that. That'll teach me if my heart's divided in some way. What would you say no to if God asks you, to give it up. We're going to move into a time of uh, communion. And one of the New Testament invitations around communion is to ask the question of our hearts. Where are our hearts at? Where are our hearts inclined toward? And if our hearts are divided, then we cannot, we will not be able to stand in a day of trouble, in a day of tension, but united when our hearts are focused on God. And as we respond to him, let's ask him to give us an undivided heart. Let's pray as we respond to God together. God, we are uh, in a place where we acknowledge that uh, we can't will ourselves into a condition of the undivided heart. We can't just hope and try harder and tell ourselves that uh, we'll get there somehow and someday. We desperately need a move and a work of your Spirit, God, to point out those places in each of our lives where there is hardness of heart, where there's calluses that have grown, where we've been mixing things into our lives that have no business being there whatsoever. And so, God, as a step today, we come to you in repentance and acknowledge our sin before you. We confess our sins to you. And I would invite you, Father, to point out anything in my life or in the life of any of my brothers and sisters in this room here. If there's anything that you need us to attend to, Father. We want to be willing to, when you put our finger, your finger on it, to say, that's yours. We'll give it to you and to act on that. And so, Father, if there's any way in which we have wronged one another, uh, we confess that to you as well and we make a commitment in our hearts to go and make that right with the other person. And so, Father, we ask for a purity of heart. We ask for a unity of heart and spirit, Lord. 
And we want to start uh, again today walking down that path. And so we take communion as a representation of that declaration and that invitation, Father. The cup that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross to bring us back into right relationship with you and with each other. And then the bread that represents your body that was broken for us, God. There is no other way that we can live with an undivided heart except by coming to the cross and acknowledging our need and receiving it as a gift from you there, Father. So whether that's for the first time here today, someone that's crossing that line of faith and saying, I want today to declare my trust in you. I want to actually lay aside all of those things and actually say, Jesus, I am giving my life to you in trust and confidence. Come and pray with us at the side. We would love to walk you through that journey today. Or whether it's uh, you're in a place today where you just want to say, you know what, I just need to affirm and declare again my desire for God to do that in my heart and in my life. I invite you to come to the communion table as Mike and the team lead us in that.